Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 993 with Kara Lee Nielsen Fowler. What I didn't know then, what I know now, is that clear is kind. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by One Huddle, a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. With One Huddle, you can onboard new employees up to 45% faster. There was actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven that you can train your employees 45% faster. This just isn't fluff. This is real stuff. One Huddle, this new and improved way to educate your staff will train translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience in both front of house and back of house, i.e. menu development, just learning the menu, POS, limited time offers, food costs, things like this. To learn more, head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. That's the number one in huddle like a football huddle. And when you use that link, you can get access to one huddles game shop, 3000 plus on demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. One more time, restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. This episode is brought to you by Mies, the culinary operating system for food professionals. Founded by Josh Sharkey, a chef and restaurant owner for the past 20 years, Mies organizes, shares, preps, and scales your recipes like never before. Plus, you can get laser accurate food cost and nutrition analysis faster than you could even imagine. If you're a chef, mixologist, consultant, operator, or generally if you manage a recipe intended for professional kitchens, Mies is built for you. Get started by visiting getmees.com slash unstoppable. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash unstoppable and as a listener of restaurant unstoppable podcast you can get two free months of invoice processing by signing up today with invoice processing you can link all of your purchases to ingredients in your recipes and the most current cost will be automatically reflected in every recipe revolutionize the way work is done in your kitchen with me's This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts and seats and that's not it if you are interested in this head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp that's rsp for restaurant systems pro www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp 
With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest founder, partner, and CEO of All Good Industries, Kara Lee Nielsen Fallert. Kara Lee, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm here. Yes, I cannot wait to dive into your story. I'm just totally blown away by all the things you got going on between opening all these restaurants and being involved in your community and not just your community, but the greater restaurant industry community, you, you just got so much going on. Uh, I can't wait to pull back the layers to kind of dive into what's going on in your head, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Yeah, I love, um, growth is the only evidence of life by, uh, John Henry Newman. Growth is the only evidence of life dive into that yeah I um I was I think from a very young age impressed by both of my folks that um we should just constantly be trying to improve who we are and how we live our lives and how we interact with other people and and uh I think that you know life is is full of beautiful and messy and amazing things but if we just keep pursuing our own growth and the growth of others and um, the growth of our interconnectedness and our community tour, you know, for us that, um, our potential is limitless. I love this. And honestly, like in my studies of just following my curiosity and I also really geek out over alien stuff. I don't know about you, Man, but like, like yeah, <laughs> but when you start look, like looking into that stuff, you start looking into like Eastern culture, you know, what their beliefs are and how those two worlds are starting to collide and this idea of mindfulness mm-hmm. and like, what is life? You start asking that question, what is life? you start to see like just like patterns in business and life and like theory like emerge. And I think that you're absolutely right. Like life. And this is one of the things I think life is literally just, if you look at life, we all came from the same single cell organism. Mm -hmm. We all got on this planet the same way. Somehow we don't know exactly, but we evolved from that single cell organism. I don't know if you're religious or not, if you're shaking your head to this, but it's just like we like life grows, it evolves, it changes, it adapts. That like it, and we're doing it constantly as yeah. humans, you know, and we pay it forward to the next generation and like civilizations evolve. Like it's constant, never ending growth. And I think it is that simple. Yeah. And it, you know, I, we always talk about it as our team. This might sound a little morbid or a little black and white, but we always just say, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. Mm. Right. And not at even just as, in, as individuals, as an organization. What do you mean by that? Well, the status quo is is lethal, right? We do it just because it's the way we've always done it. We, that's the, what the restaurant industry did for like a hundred years. The status right, quo. right. Or you know, and there is some sense of like, yeah, the people come in because they love the same taco or they love the same shrimp salad somewhere, and they want that memory. And they, but the the other side of that is is that we always have to be relevant, even in institutional, uh, in our institutional heritage of you know what we're doing, and so the it, it has so many meanings. Right. It's, it's, it's as an organization, are we constantly growing? Are we pushing ourselves to improve what we do? Are we finding ways to make the experience, the cultural experience of our teams better? Uh, I think we basically hand over the keys and say we're done when we say we've made it. Yeah. Right. So where does the growth start for you? Take me back to the beginning. Is that 2000? Is that before 2000? I know you got Charles in a 2000. Yeah. I, my, my career, it's funny. My career started probably when I was eight years old. I feel like, <laughs> you know, like I grew up in a household where with entrepreneur parents who made my mom made dinner for the five of us after she ran a construction company wow. every day, you know, and, and we sat down and we shared what I think it, what is my passion about the industry is we shared connection mm. every single day over, 
you know, food that was prepared with love and with the intention of connection. And I didn't know it then, but I'll, and I'll never forget like the first time my, my older siblings came home and I was kind of the person in charge, albeit like probably way too young, you know, um, I had decided that I was going to make hors d'oeuvres for them when they got home from band practice. And like, I went to the, you know, the drawer in the refrigerator and like used all the deli meat for the week. I got all the crackers out. I mean, I had no business doing that, but in my, I have this very clear memory of like flooding the counters with sheet trays of like <laughs> my version of appetizers and the look of kind of sheer terror on their face when they walked in the door of like, what happened here? You know? <laughs> but I remember that moment of anticipation and wanting to, provide and surprise mm. and delight you know and um and, why, and nourish why did you want to do these things though? you what know was driving you do you think getting into that childhood mind of yours yeah i i have always loved the element of surprise and i think you know there were times i got in trouble for the bad surprises the the, the you know uh, practical the, the joke surprises, surprises. Gone wrong. right yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but i and, and and just wanting to nourish and take care of people yeah. i think that's but just innate what right? happens when you do that like, what are you receiving when that, that happens? Man, um, I find my purpose, you know? I have this working theory. Do you? Do people ever, like, I think it's the recognition. It's being seen and valued. Mm. Do, you, do you think it's a swing and a miss? There's something about being seen and appreciated for something that you've done that it just feels good to be recognized. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've never, f- I, I've never felt that. In fact, I don't. I kind of always shied away from the recognition okay. and I, and I think it's actually just the feeling of knowing of watching somebody else have that moment yeah, of joy that feels and good. knowing that you cr- helped participate yes. in that, you know? Um, and, um, and I, you know, it's kind of what I say to my t- our teams every day. Like we have this, um, privilege, this distinct privilege in what we do to spark joy and nourish others. Yeah. It's instant gratification that you mm-hmm. have an impact. That totally. You, you know, and I think that's just part of what it means to be a human is mm-hmm. to know that like I'm being seen, I'm being valued. Like mm-hmm. I, and maybe that's not why you do, maybe like, but like at the same time, seeing the, 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 someone's reaction to it is, is gratification totally and i think it's almost the mirror that watching somebody else be seen and valued in the way that they're feeling that experience that they get right that to me is part is probably greater is like that person feels special don't sure not sure why they don't see all the inner workings of the magic behind restaurants but yet they leave with this experience of feeling better than when they did yeah so let's get in our jet now this is an analogy i like to use we zoom up to thirty thousand feet yeah let's cruise to how you got to 20 the year 2000 and maybe we can dissect some of it but just give me the picture well, I actually started before that. I think my first restaurant was, I opened in 1996. I was 19 yeah. years old oh, and I left culinary school to pursue uh, an opportunity. I had a, uh, I was working for Robert Redford Sundance in Utah and I was in culinary school and I met my f- first business partner who, uh, you know, we shared the same passion for world wraps. And, um, I got a phone call one morning and, and he was like, Hey, do you want to start a restaurant together? You do all the work and I'll put the money in. And it was, I'll never forget thinking like, I just got to call my parents and tell them I'm leaving school. 
you know, and, yeah, uh, and that's what you're going to school for. Right. 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 And, uh, and so my parents were both supportive. Luckily they're both, you know, entrepreneurs and, and not so risk averse that they didn't realize I couldn't go back to school. Yeah. And I feel like the restaurant industry is one of the unique industries where it's really the school of hard knocks. Like, oh yeah. You don't learn until you, until you start getting in. No, there. not and at all. You don't want that debt to get started either. You <laughs> no. know, so no, no. And so I, um, I did that in Utah for about 18 months and then ended up working, you know, selling to that partner and working, uh, for PF Chang's for a brief period and learning a little bit about like standardization and they were kind of at the height of their, um, expansion. Um, and I remember, you know, some of the, the greats, the, 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 you know, the folks that were there at the time really set a very high bar for me of how you train people and how you make them feel like they belong in an organization. And, um, they were just amazing um, at that time. And so I was really glad that I got to see that because it wasn't long after that I decided I wanted to get back to the coast. And, and I grew up in California and at the time my, my family was, or my friends who were graduating from college or law school or where they just were like, do not move back here. It's so expensive. You know, like we're all like hot bunking in and we're, you know, whatever it was, it was just, you could, I could sense that there was, there was more stress there. And, and so a friend of mine said, Hey, check out the Southeast coast. And I drove down the coast right after hurricane Floyd and in North Carolina where there are like hog farms that had flooded and they were like carcasses still on the side of the road. I was like, what is going on in this place? You know? Yeah. This is your first impression. (laughs) Yeah. It was so bonkers. And then driving into Charleston across the old bridge, the next day and having this just fe- this feeling that I was supposed to be here. And I remember looking at my friend and saying, I don't know where, I don't know if you feel the same way, but this is where I'm supposed to be. I would imagine the cost of living in Charleston in 2000 was probably pretty reasonable. It was. Compared to California. Oh, hundred percent. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and to be able to live at the beach and, you know, it was a big thing for me. And so, uh, after moving here, um, six months later, I, I started, um, uh, I was living on Folly Beach, which at the time was, we kind of joke about, like, it was a play- place where you would, could hide if you really wanted to, like people who uh, had never left the island, like not crossed the river for 10 years, you know, and wild. lived a very like, you know, vagabond life. And it was a really lovely place, you know, warm water. I'd never had like beach culture the way that Eastern beach culture is and Southeastern beach culture. Is it, how's it different? Not that we're here well, to talk about beach culture, but I'm no, curious. I think it, but I think it's relevant because I think it had an impact on why I started taco boy, but you know, growing up in California, my dad's family's from orange County. And so we had the opportunity to be able to go to the beach and see and spend a lot of time there. And, and so it's like, it's, it's rocky. It's, you know, it's, it's cold water. It's big waves. It's uh, California beach culture, which is it has a lot of is a lot of impact from the border from you know influences of Mexican immigrants and and Mexican culture and um and and obviously like the melting pot that and you know I'm not even sure that's the relevant word anymore but Asian like culture too. yeah everything you know and so but my experiences of like the beach culture in California uh, was really influential on in me, on me, and and then when I came out here, and you're like, you don't have the big rocky cliffs into the ocean, and it's you know, it's a very different beach and i remember looking at the the marsh and being like what is this ugly stuff (laughs) (laughs) why does it smell where's the beautiful you know where's the beautiful tide pools and farted (laughs) yeah 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 it was just this weird thing you know and then i grew to really love and appreciate it and and then also just realized how different they were and that the sea like this the beach culture life that i was used to where beach the beach and the ocean and the seafood component 
were married, mm. right? Like right on the beach, whether it was taco trucks or stands or whatever it was, fish tacos. It didn't exist here. And I kept wondering why we'd go surfing and come out of the water and be like, where's the fish tacos? Yeah. You know? And so it wasn't, you could eat seafood in downtown restaurants and there were definitely fry shacks in different places, but it wasn't seafood and beach culture mm. put together. Yeah. And so it had, I think it was a significant impact for, to, for me to eventually, I, I you bet know. that has a lot to do with Hispanic and Asian culture. Cause I feel like they are very like street food. Like it's very common. Like if there's a street, there's food, Yeah, you know, and like the East coast is more rigid when it comes to that sort of things more like, I don't want to say like proper that, that it is more proper, but they think that it's more proper. You yeah. Know what I'm saying, yeah, no, there's definitely like food vendor, like hawker culture, like, you know, is more, I, th- I think you see it more in like the big cities and, you know, and, and where there is more diversity, frankly, and here you just didn't, we didn't have it. Yeah. You know? uh, I do want to pull back some layers. Yeah. Um, 1996, was it 1999 or 1996 that you opened your first restaurant? 1996. 1996. Yeah. Um, I mean, I bet there was just, can you pull lessons? Usually it's the first lesson that you're, the first restaurant usually where you're like, what was I, especially after opening like almost 20 restaurants thereafter. Yeah. Like through the filter you have now reflecting back at that person, what were your, your struggles? What were your challenges? Well, I mean, ultimately I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was just like, I was 19 years old and, um, I just used the knowledge that I had and asked everybody that I could, you know, to, to participate and help point in the next direction of the next uh, uh, professional who could give me some advice. But, you know, it, I, I just did it. And I, and I think that's a common thing that keeps happening is like, I just don't see the reason why we shouldn't try, yeah. you know, every single time. And, yeah. and, but the reality of it was, is it was not very successful, you know, because we made a lot of mistakes. And I, even though I knew things like food costs and all things, I mean, the most important thing about our business is people mm-hmm. and leading people and create crafting teams and, and the people who come in the door to pay your bills. Like I had no idea at that point that, that, that was the most important thing. So I made every mistake there was get, get specific, what were like, the you know, like, not knowing how to hop properly recruit and hire people. And so I was like, all my friends worked there, you know, and that became difficult faster or how Why to pro- does it become difficult when you hire nothing but friends. Oh, well managing them and, and setting expectations and holding everybody accountable sure becomes very difficult. You don't want to upset your friend. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, totally. And, and you know, you can create a, a toxic work environment pretty quickly when people aren't treated fairly yeah. and, and consistently. Yeah. And, and I think there was at the time, you know, I just, I led with a more emotional outlook and the restaurant business is, is, uh, can be chaotic and it's around the clock and you can be tired even at 19 years old, you know? And so if you have friends, are you, I think I want to, I'm reading between the lines. Yeah. I'm saying, are you, are you more likely to not treat everybody the same? Are you going to show favoritism towards a friend? Yeah. I, I think it is natural to want to, to want the people that you love to succeed and to feel good about what they're doing. Right. And so sometimes it's harder. It may, might be hard. What I didn't know then, what I know now is that clear is kind. Mm, right. Candor. And, yeah, candor. And that is like the highest value of love and, and appreciation for somebody to be clear with them. But I didn't know that in my immaturity, you know, and so leading with the like not wanting to upset anyone and not realizing how passively aggressive that was. Yeah. I but, still struggle with this to the, like, cause I, technically, I mean, I've interviewed thousands, almost thousands of restaurant owners, but I'm still a kind of a young entrepreneur, yeah. you know? So like yeah. I've spent, and I was a solopreneur for the most of it, 
and now I'm getting to the point where I'm actually starting to surround myself with a team. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I've learned this. I know this, but like, we're still human at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't see it until you, you're in it. You have to take a few steps back. You're like, I'm doing all the things I've learned not to do. Like, yeah. to like, like get emotional, not wanting to tell somebody what you're really thinking. Cause you know, you don't want, cause integrity is important to you. Right. Like maybe, maybe you have to take something back because you, you know, I don't know. It, it gets sloppy. It's easier said than done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's also like the more practice. Right. And I think that, so to the big lesson that I learned was ultimately it was just the first time I tried. Yeah. yeah. And so inevitably there were going to be major mistakes and major pitfalls and, you know, everything from like, you know, not, uh, allocating the, uh, kitchen versus the service area properly and having way too much space, you know, and just the things I, I hadn't really, I'd been in culinary school, but I hadn't actually worked in kitchens. I'd worked on the service side and, and the hospitality side. And so, you know, it was like set up, you know, not properly and was more difficult to run from the people who were running it. So, I mean, I look back and it's like, whew. Yeah. You know, you're, you're bringing up, I love this conversation because I recently had the author of the practicing mind fully. So three different books, the practicing mind, fully engaged and it's just a thought mm-hmm. and his name is Thomas Sterner yeah. and he, it's all the book is about mindfulness the practicing mind mm-hmm. and what you just said um, it, you know is practice and and I think early in our career we can get super down on ourselves because we look at what we're doing and then we look at the, the people that we admire and we're like we're nowhere near that yeah you know or we're, like you're just like uh, you feel like the, you're just trapped in chaos right where you are right now is exactly where you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And, and ha- cause like what happens is you get this fear and this anxiety that you're doing things wrong, but you know that like that's part of the journey. That's part of the practice. Yeah. When you start golfing, you suck. Yeah. But the only way you get better is by keep swing, keep swing. And eventually you're going to be hitting it down 300 yards center fairway. I don't know. If, I'm not a golfer, but I think 300 yards is normal, right? I don't ask. Shrugging me. my shoulders. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. the, so like what's going through your mind as I'm saying this? Yeah, you know, I that that at every level of every year of every decade of every restaurant of every team member um that I'm always learning. Yeah. That it, it never, you know, I think the idea and, and picking back on what you're saying, I think that we probably have a similar similar studies or outlook on the life but on life but it you know, even like this morning, I was telling you like nine one one phone calls going off and really, you know, problematic things that you have to deal with and things that can be extraordinarily scary. Like that happened this morning. Yeah, yeah. You're you know, so in this cool, calm, and collected right now. <laughs> I uh, and no matter what level you get to, you 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 haven't seen it all, right? And and, and as I train other senior leaders in our team as we're growing our team um, right now to do this expansion of Taco Boy in the southeast, I. Yeah, you know, I, I, I like we kind of sometimes like to joke and like regale each other with like, well, you want to know what happened in 2022, you know, or whatever it was. And but the reality of it is, is even my, uh, you know, my mentor, uh, Jerry Shear, who's been in the business for 40 years, um, you know, usually he has seen things and we and we work through it together. He's my business partner, too. But he's still surprised by things. And that just tells you, you're like, you're always learning. You're never not going to learn as long as you keep it open, right? Not With only, this idea yeah. that you don't, that you'll never know it all. Yeah, or, and the world's, yeah. like we said, like if you're not growing, you're dying because the yeah. world is changing around us. Oh, so yeah. even if you've learned everything, which is not possible, yeah. give it a day, it will change. Yeah. And I think it's helped me take the turbulence out of, you know, being so emotionally attached or having my ego on the forefront. And, and that was something that I learned really early on too, right? Yeah. That... That uh, 
and especially when I was 19 or 27, you know, and when I, I had to open a Spanish wine bar in Charleston and I was 27 years old and I was like having, it was amazing, you know, and I had these other restaurants and, and be that young and carefree and yet successful and, and learning and growing was like, you know, it took a few years and a, t- a few difficult things to realize like, wait a minute, this is a lot harder than it yeah, should be because yeah. of how I, how centered my ego is on this versus just being, realizing like I'm a conduit for this learning and this progress. And if I'm willing to put my hands out and grab other people in the process, then we're a greater conduit and a, you know, and a greater, uh, you know, human organization to help everybody human be a network. part of that. Yeah, yeah. And the interconnectedness. And so it just, you know, I, th- I think there was a time to just realize it is, I am the engine, but it's not about me. Yes. Yes. I'm loving this. I really am. And I'm tempted to go deeper, but I want to make sure <laughs> we talk about what's back. going on in current times. <laughs> yeah. I do want to give a nod to PF Chang's. We're, like, where were they in 1999 or 1998, whenever you were working there? Yeah. I want to say uh, just less than 20 stores. 20 stores. So still a small company-ish. Yeah. Relative yeah. to what they are today. Um I don't know if we need to go into this deep, but just what you did, I think is so great. I just want to like acknowledge, like go work for a corporation, go, go start a franchise. Yeah. If you have zero restaurant experience, but you have money, this isn't for everybody. You need to have money to start a franchise, but you want to dive into the restaurant industry, go be a part of an amazing franchise and learn the the ropes. Cause they're going to give you all the systems and processes you need. And then once you feel like you got that going, then you can do what your thing is. Like there's nothing saying that if you're a franchise owner, you can't also open your own concepts. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, but I, I just think that, to, to go into those organized organizations, those organized organizations, mm-hmm. uh, to learn the standards training in this culture stuff is so important. Do you want to yeah. reflect a little bit more no, on that? For sure. And I think there's, they probably don't get enough credit, right? Like in the world of, uh, depending on what spectrum of the industry you're in, but like the bespoke independent, you know, highly creative Michelin star seeking businesses. I don't think always give a lot of credit to, um, those larger organizations, whether they're, you know, a franchise or big corporately owned restaurant chains. And, and um, but the reason why there are so many is because they've understood the the, uh, the paramount, the absolute critical thing about consistency mm. in the in restaurants, and they and so they have dialed it down. They have standardized everything. And they understand how to do that, and they understand how to try to train people for consistency and and um, I, you know and and so once you see that, then I think you can understand like how to really create an yeah. institution and a wonderful experience for your guests and potentially a successful business. Yeah. Systems, processes, culture, consistency that helps you create impact. When you have thousands of locations that impact get, gets spread out because you're, there's more people. So, you know, but if you can take that level of system processes, procedures, culture, and consistency and narrow the focus into like 10 locations, the impact I don't know if you know like physics or anything, but the impact you can do when you, when you narrow the focus, yeah. right. is huge. So yeah. take those lessons, narrow the focus into your small business and watch the impact. Yeah. It's powerful. Uh, okay. So now is a great time to take our first break. Thank our sponsors. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about, um, your, uh, your, you land in Charleston and what happens thereafter. 
This episode is brought to you by One Huddle. One Huddle is a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. One Huddle provides a mobile first approach to preparing the modern worker, a library of 3000 plus quick burst skill games and the option to instantly create personalized content. One Huddle is changing the way restaurants develop their workers by transforming the traditional manuals in videos into deceptively simple, highly effective mobile games proven to level up workers quickly. Let's get into some of the facts. So with One Huddle, you can onboard employees 45% faster than traditional methods. And there's actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven you can train your employees 45% faster using games on One Huddle versus traditional micro learning and video based learning. This new and improved way to educate your staff will translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience, both front and back of house, i.e. menu development, menu memorizing, POS, limited time offers, food costing, things like this. You're looking at a more engaged worker too, because they're in competition with themselves and the entire organization. This stuff is powerful. Right now, head to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash one, like the number one, and huddle like a football huddle. And if you use that link, you can get 90 days access to One Huddle's game shop, which includes 3,000 plus on-demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. Again, that's restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. And you have to use that link. This is a cost per acquisition agreement, meaning we get paid per lead that goes through that link. So if you are finding value in this podcast and you want to support, please use this link. And it's, it's a testament to how much we believe in one huddle that we're willing to do this. So thank you in advance. We are back and the year is 2000. Mm-hmm. You land in Charleston. Yeah. What's the game plan? Well, I didn't really think I wanted to be in restaurants anymore. And I um, I thought I wanted to be a writer. Scared straight, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just think that, like, maybe I should go to school. Maybe I should do this. You know, I was still pretty, like, just 20. I think I was 22 at the time or something like that. And um, 22 or 23. And I thought, I really wanted to be a writer. I was living on Folly Beach. And I remember taking a tour of a clam farm that was out there thinking, like, maybe I'll write something about this and submit it or figure out what I want to do. And, and uh, a friend of mine at the time... I wanted to fly back to Salt Lake City for Christmas. My family was there and I needed money for the holidays. And they were like, hey, I saw this restaurant McCready's downtown is hiring. And like, you should just go host there or something and earn money for the holidays, right? Within. And uh, so I did that. And I now I was uh, in orientation and training with the admin team when the, the office manager saw my resume and was like, hey, mate, you've already owned your own restaurant. Like, what are you doing just trying to host? And... um and I just told her, I was like, I'm not sure if I want to be in the business anymore. And I, and I'm, I don't know, I'm just trying to figure it out. And she said, well, the ownership, I'm helping the ownership of this restaurant open a French brasserie in Charleston here in town. Do you want to help? And I was like, mm, yep, sure. <laughs> you know? And um, so I had the opportunity to work t- and open a restaurant called 39 Rue de Jean and started as kind of the, you know, lead admin and helping be on site really to help get the business open with that team. Um, and eventually was the director of operations. What was your biggest point of evolution during this time? You know, I th- I think really seeing the inflection point of like the difference between um, 
that it that it's a party you throw a party every day and that everybody on the team plays a different role in that and you usually the person who is also the best at throwing the party is also not the best person at making sure the bills get paid right that we all have these strengths and that's me <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 and um and and so i think that was the first time that i saw this idea that Great, great restaurateurs and great anybody, entrepreneurs in general, understand their strengths and surround themselves with the people who complement their weaknesses or cover their weaknesses, you know. And and um, I couldn't probably have articulated at that time, but I really watched uh, both that business and then the sister businesses that we built out of that for that group. Uh, I really watched just how you put together a team and what happens when you put people on the wrong seat on the bus. Yeah. Um, and well, how you Jim have to, Collins there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. Like, and, um, and just what, you know, I, 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 like I said, I couldn't have articulated it at the time, but looking back, that's exactly what I was learning ultimately, yeah. you know, and, and really how a lot of restaurants fail because they don't, people will get into it for that romantic notion of throwing a party every night or they love, you know, their, their family loves to cook or whatever it is. And they forget it's a business yeah. and they don't treat it like a business. When you're pouring a glass of wine at home for a friend, you don't have to make sure it gets rung up. You know? <laughs> yeah. There's little, like these little things that will trip you up, you know? Um, yeah. If I mean, and that is why you love this industry. Um, and you, and all that other stuff sounds frightening. Then maybe go figure out how to make money so you can throw parties every night. The way oh you yeah. Want to. Don't, yeah. Cause it's not going to be what you think it is, Mm-mm. you know? And honestly, and I don't mean to sound negative. I think half my, my mission with this podcast is to talk people out of opening restaurants. <laughs> Seriously. Cause yeah. like it, it, you're saving yourself a huge headache if you think it's going to be a party every night. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. there's been, yeah. We've helped way too many people with the restaurants who started with those, you know, romantic notions, but I had the, so it was a good opportunity for me to work and see and be a part of just building restaurants from the ground up with them. And at the time I had met uh, a, a business partner, a future business partner who was really instrumental in connecting me with my current one of my primary current partners who I talked about, Jerry Shear, who's been amazing. And, um, but I was able to be on the ground floor with, as a partner with Post Tavern at the time. And that was 2003. And um, Post Tavern now is, I'm no longer an equity partner there, but I think they've like six or seven on the East Coast and kind wow. of, a, um, you know, well-known, beautiful beach brand. But that was the first time in this area that I was a partner and, and instrumental in operating and, and growing bus- the business. And, and that opportunity helped me uh, start a restaurant, like we talked about the Spanish wine bar, Raval. Uh, and Raval was really, I think, the first time that I was a part of creating something um, that I had seen somewhere else, right? That eventually kind of became the model for traveling around the world and seeing something beautiful or experiencing something that I realized, realized our, our, our community didn't have yeah. and I wanted to share with them. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to have it myself. I wanted to be able to go once a week and be like, let's go get, you know, you know Spanish tapas and beautiful wine. And Spanish wine at the time was, you know, booming in the States. And it was really... Uh, having its heyday or, or really, you know, being acknowledged as great, having great wine. And, and, and so, you know, that was the first time I kind of created my own version of something that I had experienced. Yeah, I want to unpackage that, but I also want to acknowledge and address some of the things that you said and bring it to the surface. Uh, the, the power of one going to other restaurant groups who are opening restaurants and learning the process of opening restaurants, opening the business of opening restaurants and running restaurants 
two different things. Oh yeah. So find a, if you're young and passionate and have dreams of opening your restaurant, don't go work for the best restaurant. Go work for the best person at opening restaurants Yeah. and go open restaurants because you will learn so much, uh, but also work in restaurants, but definitely get a few openings under your belt. Be a part of the managing team because that is such invaluable mm-hmm. skill set you'll pick up. Then also you're new to town. Yeah. If you came in and landed in 2000 and you tried to open a restaurant in 2000, you don't know anybody. Mm-mm. Spending five years working for people, opening restaurants, and meeting other passionate restaurant people, now you're building your network. Yeah. You, you can't open a restaurant where you don't have roots laid down. Yeah, 100%. And, and listening, you know, something that has occurred to me over and over every time I've done it, and also now that we've been going into other markets, is that far too often people open restaurants for one right? They're like, I have this great idea and I, I love this, but they don't listen to the market. They don't go out and determine that there's truly a need or they're just want, they just go out to battle, you know, in a street fight with other talented restaurateurs for every customer there's out there. And that is so damn tough. Mm. But when you listen, you know, when you're thoughtful about what a community might need, or um, a segment of the market that's not being met, that's truly, you know, that maybe people don't know they're interested in, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. So you open a... Uh, Revol. Revol. Yeah. Revol. Thank you. Revol. Am I saying it right? Revol. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what, were there any struggles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, building a concept, we built a concept that was built around Spanish wine, right? And, um, and, and, Rev, and, and, and we did it in a very... Um, worked with um, Bill Johnson architects out of Atlanta, who's just like iconic in restaurant design and built a beautiful space. But, and, and Charleston culture really is, we have very European tendencies here, (laughs) you know, like people enjoy the uh, drinking here in a different way, in a way that's different from how I've seen it in the rest of the United States, but it's more of a part of our, maybe that's the South in general. (laughs) I don't know, but Uh, Europe. So the, the, the European culture generally drinks to get drunk. Yeah. 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 It's, there's this fascinating book called Drunk, which talks about the evolution of, of drinking culture yeah. since we were monkeys, literally, like eating overripe fruit. For, yeah, from Have you yeah. read that book? No. It's such a fascinating <laughs> book. But they talk about like the evolution and how drinking alcohol manifests in different cultures. Yeah. And you're not wrong by saying that, you know white people love to get hammered. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I just hadn't seen yeah. it the way I saw it when I came here from the West Coast to the East Coast. And I, I guess that's why I likened it to our strong, yeah. you know, European roots here and the history here. And But I... Um, I what, shouldn't say all... Like, so Southern Europe, Mediterranean cultures tend to be more sippy, but they yeah. drink all day. Where, like, Northern... like cultures like yeah it's time to drink now and we got five hours to drink drink as much as possible <laughs> go yeah Sorry go to, to town you. no it's okay i don't want anybody to be offended by my statement <laughs> well i um but what i what we misunderstood about spanish just doing a spanish wine bar with light tapas was that the market here wanted more food and they wanted uh to be able to transition in order for the business model to really work and for us to make money and um we needed to build out more than just Spanish wine cocktails and some small, you know, pinchos essentially. And so we had to tinker. And that was the first time I'd seen that, you know, I'd participate in that, like, oh, the numbers are good. Everybody loves this, 
but we're not feeling the profitability we want to see. So we've got to keep pushing this concept, you know? And so we did the Spanish wine bar in the front room and then in the back room eventually built more of like a cocktail lounge where there was a DJ at night and it becoming everybody's favorite place to go dancing. And, and then when the space opened next door, it was like, well, we should, you know, op- we, we could make more food if we rented the spot next door and put a hole in the wall and connected spaces. And, and I love and so- that approach to growth. Start where you can and knock down walls. Yeah. People get so over their skis. They're like, I need a giant restaurant. That's oh, a, boy. That's a lot of empty seats. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of way to burn money yeah. fast. Um, but yeah. So, and then, you know, and so because of that, then it's just like always the next idea, the thing that we've saw somewhere else that we wanted to bring back. And that was Neapolitan pizza. And it was a very natural fit to, you know, build a Neapolitan pizza restaurant, Monza next to Raval. Yeah. And okay. so and they were connected. And, and then we suddenly had the, we did have a, the size of a business that had the right scale and the right staffing and labor so that it could, you know, meet the, you know, the requirements for our ROI essentially and how we wanted to operate that business. Were you using that, that kitchen for both restaurants? Um, no, but there were there were services that were connected, like the grease trap between the two were connected. Like we used different things to, you know, if you'd had to put two grease traps in both sides, it would have been very difficult. And so we used as many of, uh, you know, combined as many resources as it made sense yeah. ultimately. And I think opening a restaurant next door is, if you're going to open a second restaurant, it's the best place to open it because right. you can literally take a step. Yeah, Danny Meyer door. taught everybody yeah. that, like, yeah. right? Um, no, it makes total sense. Um, and at the same time that we are doing that is when the first Taco Boy was built out on Fly Beach. I am curious. Um, did you have a partner for Revel? Yeah, actually, you know, that's, that's probably a through line of my career too, is I've had business partners, some that are silent investors, some that are active participants in the daily operation. And um, it's been different everywhere. And I think that's been good that, you know, as I learned in over my career to find partners that have the same values. Mm. Super important, right? And Did you make this mistake? Oh my times? God. <laughs> yeah, I keep making it. Are you kidding me? No, I'm kidding. So what is your process to make sure they have the same values before going into business with them? Well, I think there's a handful of things, right? Like partnerships are like marriages. And so uh, you want to make sure you have the same values. You want to be able to talk through that. And ultimately, you really want to get a good lawyer involved really in the early part of it for an operating agreement. I think marriages should probably have lawyers get involved. <laughs> right. <real ones. laughs> right. The prenups. Like, yeah. And that is exactly what it is. Like I say any business venture when you're getting into it with anybody else, it's really a good idea to stay. It's You want to go in. Everybody gets so excited about the proposition of building something and creating something new. Like the promise is so intoxicating. But the reality of it is, is the hard thing happen and lives are destroyed and relationships are destroyed when you don't take the discipline up front and say, let's talk through every hard thing that we could encounter and let's get a hundred percent clear on whose responsibility it is to do this. What's going to happen when X happens and Z happens. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And have it documented. And, 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 And it's, that's really hard to do when you're, you know, getting excited to spend time and create with somebody with other people. But it is so essential because those guidelines help inform decisions along the process. They help, they help guide everybody when things get tough and they always will. Were you doing this at Ravel? 
Yeah, yeah, we did. We but what we learned is we didn't. You know what we learned is we didn't have a great operating agreement. We had like a copy of somebody's operating agreement from a real estate company, and so later down the road, as we continued to like copy that and copy that and copy that, every yeah. time we formed a new entity add, and add a new one, add a new one. Add yeah, like we new. realized we did find ourselves at one point we were like, oh, gosh, we have this operating agreement doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, what does your operating agreement now have that? that you know that wasn't present back then i mean we have to think we go through every worst case scenario right what happens if a partner dies what happens if somebody's incapacitated what happens if partners not doing their job right somebody doesn't if an operator if somebody's an operator they're not doing their job what happens if somebody does something nefarious what what to hurt the business or hurt somebody in it like um what happens if somebody's just tired and wants to get out? You know, Exit strategy. Yeah, it's, there's and that will happen eventually. Hundred um, percent. Things like, are we, what do we? When do we have to come to an uh, to the floor and discuss things? You know, so certain thresholds. If if I'm the operator, you know, the daily operator for that LLC or that entity, and and I'm I'm in charge for the partnership of getting that done. At what threshold do I put my hand up and say, guys, we need to spend, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we need to spend $10,000 or $5,000 and everybody says, sure, do it. But like what thresholds that needs to happen? That's crazy. I feel like I was literally in my mind just thinking like, I want to ask her how much we should budget to get an operating agreement. And like, as I was feeling that, like we just went there. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think 10, people might say to themselves, I don't have $10,000. Yeah, no, it's not that much. But. What what's it going to cost you if you don't spend that extra ten thousand dollars? Especially oh. if you're going to banks and you're raising capital. Yeah, like you raise a million dollars, right? Yeah, raise ten more dollars, ten thousand yeah. more dollars. I'm not going to. Yeah. If you're raising a million, you should have a sponsor. I would hope most people would have a sponsor, a sponsorship agreement, a partnership agreement. Yeah, I worry about sponsorship agreements. You worry about partnership yeah. agreements. Um, just get the extra money. Yeah, hundred percent. It's I, you know, I think that like we've spent anywhere from like fifteen hundred to thirty five hundred dollars in that process, and it's so and in telling it, you know, and being candid with everybody, like bring your own lawyer if you want. Like let's just let's get this thing hammered out. Let's let's hire, you know, and, and that is probably one of the most important things because one in that process you actually get to see somebody's character. You get to see what's important to other people and you get to see how they react in almost like a pseudo negotiation. You really find out if your core values align. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's important. I, you know, if you don't trust somebody, if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't bet your own house or your own existence on their ability to make decisions, you shouldn't be going into business yeah. together. What about, um, so early on, we're, this first partner, was it a financial partner or an operating partner? No, at the time, it, I had several partners in each one of those restaurants, you know, um, and um, and we ultimately had different some different roles swapping in and out. Sometimes it was, you know, I was, I was never just the money person, you so, know, but I was generally always the person who got the restaurants open okay. and helped participate in crafting the concept, right, so from a creative, creative standpoint. And mm-hmm. you, you did go to school for creative retail, right? Yeah, my first, before I got into culinary school, I was in, I was in the visual merchandising okay. um, school before they closed it. I was curious about that over there. Yeah. I was like, she's doing what she went to school for, in a, in a sense. Right? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I've always loved design. I, my mom, My mom built houses for years, and I used to watch her you know, draw out. She basically was the architectural designer for every home they built. And so I, I've got to see design from a very, very early uh, and very hands-on approach. And so I've always loved it. And it's still really, uh, you know, fills my cup now and what I do. But um, yeah, I, so I've, and I, but I think ultimately what I've learned in, 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 from that time, from what I was doing with all those partners and, and 
opening businesses, that's my favorite process is opening. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of weird questions I ask sometimes and I'm not trying to expose you or be disrespectful. How did you get the money? The first for the first restaurant. Um, well, the first one I was given uh, the first one, it was kind of like, you know, just being partners and hey, we're putting this money in and you're doing the sweat equity. Right. So, that's, so that was the first first. Yeah. In, and in then Utah. similarly on my second one, same. I was yeah. the daily operator this and there was no post tavern. And post I was tavern. basically, you know, given the opportunity to be an equity partner because I think they were really smart to know that if you're. Uh, if you have your skin in the game, then you're going to be yeah. thinking, approaching it very differently. I think this is the new business model. I don't know if you're familiar with Uptown Social and what they're doing, oh, yeah. but they're so quick to offer partnerships. Yeah. And I don't think you can do it alone today with marketing and finance and technology. Yeah. And I mean, maybe you can do it all, but you won't have the time of the day to do it all. Even if you yeah. have the skill set to do it all, you know, it's getting so more like you, you've been in this industry for how long, like how much more complicated is it today than it was 20 years ago? Oh, easy. I mean, <laughs> it's, I would say 10, 10 times exponentially harder, you know? Um, but maybe it's just the scale that I'm into now, yeah. you know? And, um, but it is technology and a consumer and, and there's so many things that are, that are different now. And, and that is the big thing for me, you know, is, is I've learned from all of those partnerships. I've learned from all of the experiences from, you know, every mentor, every creative, every uh, business partner that I had that we all just generally come with certain strengths. And um, so we can't do it all ourselves. Yeah. And, and uh, many entrepreneurs, I mean, there's definitely a point in my life where I was building and operating and doing and the creative and I, and I was good enough at enough at each one of those components that I could do it and I could build a company based on it. But the pitfalls come pretty quickly when you scale and you're wearing that many hats. Take me to a pitfall. Take me to a struggle. Well, not being able to, I would say not being able to focus on not being able to do anything really, really well because you're trying to do Mm. everything right. So and I, would, I wish I could say like there was just like one moment, but I, I can't say that there was just like one moment where it was like, oh, this is because of that. Maybe there's just tiny moments every single time. But, you know, being able to train and mentor people the way that you want to, like it's, I understand now that that is the most important thing my team wants from me is my time. Mm. And I spend more time with lawyers and more time with architects and insurance folks and engineers than you know, all kinds of things. So I now know that, by not doing everything yourself, you can really focus and have impact. And especially in the areas that you're, where your strengths are, um, to elevate, you know, what you're working on. And sorry, go ahead. No. And so I would say that's, you know, I think I learned that lessons in small bits along the way. How do you prioritize what to shed first? If you're doing everything and, and you need to find focus and narrow your focus, you can't just stop doing something. No, but I think there are definitely things if you're like, I am I am best at this. I am least best at that. You know, you just shed the thing that you're the least best at because yeah. odds are it takes you the most time. And maybe you're uh, like, for me, I'm not a detail-oriented person. I'm, Amen, sister. <laughs> you know? And so, like, I would have problems with... Um, you know, putting my calendar together or getting, you know, reading emails thoroughly and seeing all that before responding. Are you dyslexic by any chance? I have ADD pretty bad. I'm not dyslexic, but I definitely like my attention is, you know, limited at best. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I would say the things that you just know 
are not your strengths are the things that you should shed the, the quickest. And, and the things that you can really outsource quickly, like bookkeeping, right? A lot of times yeah. people in our industry get behind in putting their invoices in and paying their bills. And, and it's not because maybe they don't have the money. It's just maybe they just don't love doing it. Yeah, so it stacks up. What are you not good at? What are you don't like? Yeah. Um, and like, or what are you good at? But, oh, you're way better at that than I am. Yeah. So yeah. well, you do it. And yeah. so I can do what I'm the best at, yeah. which is for you, it sounds like the visioning the in the planning, the or like the, the building, mm-hmm. the, the putting the putting the teams together. Yeah. And it sounds like that's your link because you don't spend a lot of time in the restaurants. Today, I, w- I love to spend time in the restaurants, but it's not. And that's the challenge of growing the way that we are right now is 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 prioritizing being in the restaurants with my teams now. Right. I do. And um, because I it, although my strength is being the visionary and seeing way down the road what we're capable of and inspiring people around me to do it and to be a part of the team and to do it together. Um, I, I definitely don't get the opportunity to have the one-on-one time that I want with people. But at the same time, it's the feedback from my teams. It's the listening that happens in the restaurant and the, com- and the conversations that we have that best inform me how to do my job the very best. Mm. So it's really, I find myself at this place where I did, I used to do everything, right? And now I really do the bookends, which is the long range planning, the long range, you know, vision of what we're doing and how we're trying to create it and, and working with my team, with the senior leadership team to get it done. So directors of operation and communication and culinary and, you know, and team success and, and, and I, I work with them and then I use my experiences in the restaurant and listening to the teams and the conversations that I have with the teams to really gauge the results of our work together. Mm. When did you go from a, a place of telling to listening? When did that shift the power of listening really come into the vision for you? During the, during the pandemic, a hundred percent. How have you listened differently? Um, well, I don't, we weren't really listening before at all. What we were, were you- listening to the customer and we were listening to our own egos and we were not really listening to our teams. You what know, happened when you, what was the shift? What was the, the tipping point? Um, I think that the, the clarifying moment of the, of the pandemic, when you, when we shut the restaurants down and when I was a part of reopening each one, we weren't shut very long in South Carolina, you know? Um, Thank you, South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's bonkers. And, um, but we, you know, it was, it was the hardest time of my whole career. I didn't know if we were going to, I was going to lose everything we'd worked for. And, um, and never had it ever been more obvious that the dishwasher and the host and the line cook and the prep cook and the bartender and the server were the most important people in the room. And they had been the whole time. But they were not given the voice. They weren't given the platform. And nor were they really given um, the credit. And, and you know, even though we said, you know, we were, I, I just distinctly remember, I mean, every organization I've ever worked with or worked for, or, you know, partnered with is like, yeah, it's all about the people, right? But we, we weren't really doing that. You know, we had such unrealistic expectations about how people were supposed to live their lives and what they were supposed to work for. And our bottom lines grew because of those expectations and, and, um, you know, and seeing that moment of realizing like it didn't really matter on some of those days, like it didn't matter if the manager couldn't come to work, but it sure shit mattered when the line cooks didn't come to work. So was it like an awakening? It was like a moment where you're just like, we can do better. 
there were, there were weeks and weeks and weeks of really like, you know, just being in the grinder and that kind of stress. And I, and I, you know, for me was, um, you know, it's never not how do like, like there's never a point where I'm like, we're going to quit. Right. It's just a whole, how do we always get better? How do we learn from this painful, painful moment? And, um, and I didn't, there wasn't a moment where I was like, aha, it just kept revealing itself over and over and over in the probably 16 to 18 months that we were enduring the ever shifting, you know, finish line moving constantly, guidance moving constantly, people's fears leading the day, not knowing what to do in a global pandemic. I mean, it was just, but so the idea that, that towards the end of that, towards, you know, the, I guess it would probably middle of 2020. So not quite even then, like rebuilding our leadership team with other people who had the same ideas of like, yeah, we can transform the world one restaurant at a time, actually. Yes. And if you transform, I, I believe if you, tra- if you transform restaurants, you will transform the world. We're too close to <laughs> what is life? Right. Like food is, I feel like also like food, like life has changed, but like we also eat life, mm-hmm. you know, like I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just feel like, if there's an industry to change the world, it's the restaurant yeah. industry because it's all connected. Uh, the interconnectedness is so yeah, if, it's if powerful. We, if we change, I think the world's forced to change with us. I agree. I agree. So um, that's what I hope I inspire. And you're totally inspiring right now. Like, what you're <laughs> dropping, like you're, if you're not changing people, if yeah. you're not influencing people, I don't know what yeah. will change and influence people. But when you started listening, yeah. what started to change? Speaking of change growth. Well, I think ultimately really thinking through like the life cycle of like, why do people come to our industry? And what is our expectation of what we're supposed to offer them when they, you know, show up on the shores and, and, sh- and show that they have an interest or, or maybe they just, you know, we're shipwrecked there from life circumstances, whatever it was, you know, but what is our opportunity and our obligation in, in saying here is a, you know, one of my favorite things about the restaurant industry, which is me, like I'm a college dropout, you know, like I went back a couple of times to get some accounting classes to make sure I understood I had financials, but, um, and I, and I own a company. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it is the great equalizer of you can show up with nothing, just the sheer tenacity and will and drive and a love for this business. And as long as you're willing to stay open and, and to continue to learn and you have the you know, aptitude for risk, you can do anything. Yeah. And you have to listen to learn. Yeah. You have to be open to learn. Yeah. But you have to open those channels first. Yeah. You have to tell everybody, I'm listening. Yeah. And they, and they have to know their safe space for them to tell something so they can be candid with you. Yeah. And yeah. not worry about their job. And creating a culture, you know, I think this is when we rebuilt the company in 2020 during the pandemic and brought leaders along um, who had ideals around, ex, you know, pursuing excellence and, um, and just never stopped never stopping the learning and the listening, right? Like that this was our really kind of, this is what we were set up to do every day. This was our true purpose was to continue to help develop each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Through that lens that we could really build an amazing company by by saying here is the space that we're all going to help improve each other. And with that requires everybody to be open to the feedback and being willing to constantly ask, how can I do that better? How mm-hmm. can we do that better? Can I offer you some feedback to hear how you can do that better? Yeah. And and I, I love just the simple questions that get these amazing answers every single day from our teams. Like when I have the opportunity to sit down in lineups or walk into a kitchen and 
meet who might be new, you know, introduce myself and meet who's new or high five the team that's there. And when I get to say to somebody, uh, tell me how we could do something better. Tell me if with your outside eyes, what we need to improve. Um, like it gives me chills because frequently it is something we're already working on or we are already aware of. But more importantly, like that moment where somebody says, you know what? Three of our POS terminals are down and we can't figure it out and it makes things harder. And I have the opportunity to be like, I can fix that, yeah. you know, and I can make your job easier. But more importantly, I can show you that just by having the right tools and in the right environment and in a place where you can tell me what you need and know that somebody else isn't going to get in trouble, right? right. Like I'm not going to go find a general GM and be like, and tell me why you haven't bought fixed these POS terminals. You know, that this is just a place for us all to get better and better. Like the, the, the lift that comes with from everyone who's involved in that is my favorite part. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm pushing deep into the idea of listening right now Yeah, because I literally just had this author in, I was in Philadelphia last week. Um, we connected with Christine miles, the author of what is it costing you not to listen? The power of, I think, or I can't remember the subtitle, but it's like how to connect, solve, sell, and it's powerful. Yeah. And we go through like practices on like how to be a better listener, the questions to ask to be a better listener. If you looked at that title and, thought to yourself, I'm skipping over this one. Yeah. Don't be a knucklehead. Go back and listen to that because yeah. it's literally the key to communication is listening, understanding first, seek to understand, then seek to be understood. And if you, if you approach every conversation as a information gatherer, not a teller, you will go so much further. Yeah. It's super powerful. And I want to have her back to do some workshops and stuff. Cause it's, it's super powerful stuff. Um, okay. I'm loving Everything you're giving us. I'm looking at the time. I want to, re- I know you're very busy today. We have 30 minutes left wow. together. Um, so looking at your, I mean, you, I'm just going to rifle through your timeline. Um, so 2005 Reval, if I'm saying anything wrong, please correct me. You got it. <laughs> uh, 2006 Folly Beach, 2007 Monza Pizzeria, which was next door, 2009 closed for business. Is that actually something that closed or is that the name of a business? <laughs> it's the name for business. Okay, just so making sure we, yeah. I heard that right. Uh, 2009 also Taco Boy. Downtown, yeah. Which is five locations now. 2011, The Royal American. 2013, Park and Grove. 2014, Park Cafe. Is that the same thing? Or that was the same thing, actually. Okay. So I think 2011 was, or 12, was Lily's Hot Kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, I guess, there was Week Week, or is that Wiki Wiki Sandbar? Yeah. 2018, and then yeah. 2022, The Bounty Bar. Yeah. Where do we focus? <laughs> so here's what I want to know. Let yeah. me know if you think this is a good approach for the rest of our time. What are the economics of the big picture? Wow. What do I mean by that? Mm-hmm. So I've learned that restaurateurs will have their passion projects that aren't really money generators, but it's what makes it's whether it's an ego thing or just a hobbyist thing or like a, you know, maybe they're just really interested in that cuisine, but the community is really interested yeah. in it. Um, it and then they have their cash cows. Yeah. The ones that are just like, well, I can scale this. This has legs. This can generate tons of money and it will float the things that I like to do. Yeah. Is there anything? Does that feel? Oh, hundred percent. So what are the economics 100%. of that? Well, I, I think it's just, it's interesting because there's a tax perspective there too, right? They're, if you have a passion project that's kind of ekes by or doesn't, you know, and, 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 it, you can kind of easily get in a place where you're like, it's okay because I like it. And, it, and it maybe it helps me on my taxes, you know, whatever. But you're you're you're, you're absolutely true. And, and I think there's, you know, those businesses that tend to really cash flow or become, you know, 
expansion vehicles or whatever green vehicles for you know growth um they become harder to run and more challenging to to do the way that you want with integrity and you know it's just you i think you end up finding ways to fill you know make yourself feel i guess filled up is the right way is what i was going to say without saying filling your cup too many times today but um finding fulfillment you're in the in the work that we do you know can i take a guess is are we we're talking about taco bar (laughs) taco boy yeah taco boy thank you um so yeah, and I and I kind of would have identified that as the yeah. cash cow. I mean, these concepts have legs. Mm-hmm. They can go. They can travel. Uh, they're relatively simple from a an operations perspective. Yeah. Uh, so you said that as you scale, they get harder to run. Yeah. For you, what were the what were the struggles? Well, I think there was a lot of important lessons, right? So one is diversification, and I think that's another reason why restaurants do what we're doing, which is. Um, you want to be able to scale with as much money as you can of your own money, right? We've also saw recently in the down in, in during the pandemic and other downturns, it's like if you've got big, you know, private equity money or big debt bank, you know, bank, you know, bank debt, that is tough when things happen that you can't control um, versus trying to use as much of your own capital to really get that growth done. But you also have to live, Right. So for me, there's been a, a nice way of diversifying, being able to have smaller satellite businesses that help me provide income so that I can also uh, really double down and help grow and, and not take on, you know, outside money. Um, and and then it's harder because there's just more people. Yeah. And people. You can only handle so many relationships. Right, right. And so then the challenge comes, and this is kind of coming back to what, what we talked about earlier, like what what is the long lessons here is like we're only as good as the team that I build around. I'm only as good as the team that yeah. I build around me. And so now I'm in a place where I have to be able to, I've never spent more time interviewing people. I'm the, I'm, I'm, I interview every management candidate we have for the whole company. And, and, and then we have these very rigorous uh interview processes for both management, any management, you know, beginning MITs or senior level management or senior level leadership where we want to like, you know, we're going to take somebody to grocery store and see if they're going to put the cart away. Like we really want to know who people are because you're constantly being interviewed. Yeah. The interview process never stops. Yeah. (laughs) And ultimately we have to trust people's judgment and who they are, their core, because we are trusting them. I'm trusting them to help influence and lead our teams on many different levels. And so that has been the big lesson is, is, you know, we took on the growth, the regional growth of Taco Boy because we finally had the right team around us who was building talent. How'd you know you had the right team? Because when everybody else still couldn't staff their restaurants for seven days a week, we, we had more than enough staff and we had people, we had leaders who understood it was on some level, it was a numbers game, right? You just went out and did everything you could to interview and, 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 interact with as many people as possible and then work really hard to refine the selection process and then ultimately never stop working on improving the culture so that you could keep, you could retain people. You know, it wasn't, it was just a, a, try to get 1% better every day at these things. And um, so a lot for the first two years, we were really bringing people from the outside in to get to rebuild it. But once the 1% improvement of every day really started to take root. We just, we've never had as much internal growth as we're seeing now, you know, and, and to be able to interview management candidates who are servers or bartenders or cooks who 
would say to me like, well, I used to be a manager and I got burnt out at this time or at this place or this, you know, this was terrible. I swore I never wanted to be in the industry again. And I'm back here just because I moved to town yeah. and need money. And, but I'm so inspired now by the environment. Like I now want to come back into management. I want to lead. And I think that's the difference is like, we went from a place of quote unquote managing people to realizing we had the opportunity to lead. Yes. Empower people. Yeah. Transform yeah. people. Grow. Yeah. And so Life. that, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that fly wheel now is is spinning and because of that it then became it was like well now our duty is to grow to provide opportunity to be able to provide ownership opportunities to provide uh, upward you know financial mobility for everyone who joins us and and the only way we do that is if we we always just say like i used to say we used to grow the pie to share the pie now i was like i have to grow the quesadilla to share the quesadilla you know um but take me to the tipping point of where paint like like you said do you hit this point where like the flywheel started going you started really like take like there was a shift almost in culture yeah take us to the point where you like that shift happened but just paint the picture of what the 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 i guess the culture like i.e what were you doing like what mission vision core values and then what were you doing to echo those things and how did you make sure people knew who you are and how you did things what elements did you have? that didn't really happen from the beginning honestly that did? we just refined that again so it, we had to we had to go back and do it because we put something on a card yeah. but it didn't mean much if you're growing you're also changing yeah you're yeah. also learning you're yeah. you're you're giving yourself access to different perspective maybe what you thought before isn't what you think now yeah maybe you've grown and you have a broader horizon and you what what matters to you now is different than what matters yeah, to you. Yeah, 100%. It's okay to change your core values, your vision, your mission, because it's only natural, you know? Well, and it was so lofty at the time, too, you know? And we weren't really connecting values with behaviors, so we were just saying, like, it's important to be honest. Yeah. But I, but really, that there was a moment where we sat in a room, and the senior leadership team, the director of operations and director of finance, director of culinary, looked at me and, 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 and my business partner, Jerry, who I told you, who, who's been you know, so important in, in my career, but, and, and looked at me and said, Carolee, show us the new stores. Like we have grown a team. We are growing people. Now you show us the growth. And it was like, oh, well, 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 okay, let me get to work. <laughs> so what are, what is your vision? Our mission is to provide positive experiences for people every day. What is your vision? Our vision is to transform our community, inspire action, incite fun and develop individuals. What are your core values? Honesty, Growth mindedness, positivity, respect, and genuine hospitality. I really put you on the spot there. You did great. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if you, but you should also be able to get to the point where you have this stuff stuck in your head. Oh, so, yeah. So you're constantly, when you see people not reflecting your core values or following your vision or following your mission, you can say, hey, Right. What are our core values? Right. So you're not correcting the person, you're correcting the process. Yeah. And they agree to all this before they ever start working for you. So yeah, David like, McClaskey was huge at teaching us that. David? David McClaskey, he actually, I think his organization is called the Business Excellence Institute, but he is incredible. He helped create the Baldrige Award for, I think it was the Reagan administration when, you know, the Japanese automakers were kicking the American automakers butts. And, yeah. And they sent him, they, you know, sent him to figure out like, why is it, what, what were they doing differently? And he created the standard of excellence of American businesses. And then you could put yourself uh, up for these awards to be evaluated basically to see how good, how good you were at operating. And, and you know, Ritz Carlton has won it. Kodak won it years 
PepsiCo, I think IBM, and you know, there's so some of the very best companies in the country want want it. And he teaches restaurateurs every day how to apply those same principles. But he really taught us how to use those, the values, the mission, and our um, purpose or our mission, you know, our mission statement to. Uh, inform the how we treat team members and how we treat each other every day. Yeah, you don't do these things to write them down in a book and walk away and never look at it. Yeah. They literally are your north star. Yeah, they, everything you do goes through this filter, and it makes this. People might sound like that sounds horrible. Like I would hate it. It makes your life so much easier because now the decision making process yeah. is easier. If you have to make a decision, you throw it up against your core values, your vision, your mission. Yeah. If it's not that then the answer is no. Yeah. And it, it takes so much weight off your shoulders. It is. And it's, I think, you know, that's the one thing that we have, I've noticed in my career is so many people get elevated into positions of management or leadership without ever being trained on how to do it. Right. And it's really nice to be able to use those tools that mean so much to us actually as who, for who we are as the, the filter through how all those decisions get yeah. made. Um, you mentioned the name, uh, David, the, what's his last name? Again? McClaskey. McClaskey. Yeah. I, I want to make sure, um, in the name of his business, I want to look this up. Yeah, I think it, I would, would want to make sure that we had that correct because I think it might have changed recently. But um, he he just offers these courses that blew my mind, you know. Um, and this and now is my we, research, <laughs> I like it. And now we take you know everybody in our in our management leadership team takes it, and it's um, it's an, it's a time commitment. But it, I think it really changed the. We made sure we were all speaking the same language, and Where's, I think that's what you were saying. Like our cult, your culture has to. Be the lexicon of your mission, purpose, and yeah. values has to be yeah. in your and, uh, and this is why I love, I don't know if you're familiar with Traction or EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System, mm-hmm. but that's exactly what they're saying is like, listen, like you need to, like you, your, your business is built on a foundation. So you think, we talk about all the systems and processes in a business, but the, the foundation itself is also a system. Yeah. And you have to, everyone has to learn that system so they use the same language, so they know what you mean when you're saying things. So yeah. there's a process to running the business. There's a, you know, like, yeah, the, the, it's, 100%. it's, yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's great. I like EOS. David, um, McClaskey, McClaskey, McClaskey yeah. sounds like he has a process. Whatever the process is, make sure you have a process that your business is built on. Yeah. It's, it's very important. We've covered so much. Uh, I'm loving this conversation. I also reinforce something. Uh, I say cash flow and people determine growth. Mm-hmm. And I love that you echoed that yeah. in your story. And that's also why I love Profit First. Are you familiar with Profit First? Mm-mm. Basically says everything gets paid first and then operational expenses Mm -hmm. because whatever's left over after you take a profit, after you do owner's pay, after you do taxes, after you do everything else that you need to do, the money that needs to go someplace that what's left over determines growth. Yeah. And like cash, I think it's just a great way to kind of act as a governor Mm -hmm. for growth. Um, I'm just, I don't know what else to talk about. We've talked, (laughs) we covered so much. Um, well, you know what you did mention, it's hard to do this without losing integrity. Mm. I think that's what you said. Yeah. So get into that a little bit. I'm curious. Yeah, I was always scared of of growing outside of Charleston. And part of it was I feel like I'd watched other brands do it. And what inevitably happened when they put the idea first or maybe the capital came first, right? Before the human talent came, before the team came. As I watched them dilute their DNA, their top talent. And inevitably, when you wanted to go to one of those brands in another market to experience where you'd experienced that familiarity, that consistency that you're looking from the first memory of that brand, 
wasn't the same. Yeah. Right. And I watched that happen over and over. And, and, for, and, and obviously people do it for different reasons. Like some people are like, let's, let's scale this and put it on the market. And we're, you know, we're looking for that, that liquidity moment or whatever it is, yeah. you know, like you get your EBITDA hunters out there. Yeah. And they're like, Ooh, they, they, they get grubby. They're yeah. like, yeah. Oh, let me get my fingers all over your business. And yeah. Look, well, how we can take it. Cause they're looking to cash in and cash out. Totally. And so that's just, that always felt really didn't, never felt good to me, especially it was like, Hey, here's your life's work. Um, and, and sure, I'm sure there's a moment where you're like, Oh, there's, there's enough money. You'd be like, yeah, take it. You know, but, but that just never felt good to me that like, Hey, well, let's just grow this in a way that to be out looking to sell it or, you know, I just, I've never, I've never felt good about that. I've always felt better about saying, Hey, we're trying to develop an institution for our community and we know our community really well and we know how to create positive impact here we know what our community needs and how to fill the gaps and sometimes that's easier as a private partner than it is as a public partner right to rely on public agencies to do that work and so I really felt passionate about the fact that we needed to stay put and I loved how Zingerman's did that in Ann Arbor right like you know 80 plus million dollar company and they were like we're not on the road and and I am a you know single a divorced mom of six-year-old like I never wanted to be like on the road I didn't think I ever wanted to be on the road and then when we had that moment where the team said to me like and and people had been saying for years that we should take Taco Boy on the road and I just was like oh I don't know you know I like it here I like the way we've got it and and really wanted the Zingerman's model but then it was it was learning from my team that anybody's not familiar with the Zingerman's model I did have Ari on the show so does school search restaurant stoppable Ari Winswag um but the in simplicity it's it's taking that idea of, of creating something and creating systems and processes and cultures so you can scale out, but instead of scaling out, scale in. Scale. Yeah. Scale And vertically in. integrate like there's yeah. nobody's business. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And so we've kind of, de- you know, we've decided is we're going to do a little of both and we're going to find communities that that we can hire senior leadership in. So now as we've grown, we have a director of communications who lives in Asheville and she is a part of that community and helps us listen and be a part of that community. And we're hiring other membership, you know, members of senior leadership as we grow to live in the communities that we're growing in so that we're not extractive. And, and I think ultimately instead of feeling like this is this proposition of spreading our talent out from Charleston, the paradigm has shifted where it's like, let's find the best people who have the same values that we do who want to strive for excellence every day and help develop each other and develop uh, the people around us. And let's gather instead, you know, let's gather a tribe. Okay. Yeah. Gather a tribe around us. Mm. Right. And not feel like we have to satellite people out, but let's find, not send somebody out to go live in another community. Let's find the people there who are our people and help us understand how we can be, you know, the best citizens and, People always ask me like, well, where do you live now? I'm like, I just live where my son and I are. You know, we have this big van, this mobile office that was, we recently, um, I'm so jealous of that thing. (laughs) I need to ask you uh, because I, that is my dream. What you have in your driveway right now. We call it the taco boss. Yeah. I just want to live in a van and just like be able to post up and let the story happen and not rush away from it. So, yeah. And that was a big, you know, that was pretty strategic on, and, and for a handful of reasons. And one was again, to not follow this model where it was like, Oh, well, corporate or headquarters, you know, talk about headquarters or whatever is in Charleston, South Carolina. It was like, no, our leadership, our, you know, our headquarters is where we are. Right. Which means I wanted people to, to know that when the van was there parked in the parking lot, that headquarters was there with mm. them. 
and that it was really headquarters was always there with them. Can I you see know, your leadership? van before I go? Yeah, for sure. Are you are you driving away in it right now? No, okay. I'm not. Awesome. We're taking it tomorrow night. We'll take it tomorrow night. But it was also twofold, you know, because I mentioned my young son. I needed a way to make sure that he could have the best experience being on the road with me and, and, and the, and the other caregivers who come and parts of our team to help make this all happen. And so just the simple thing of being able to say, Hey, there's a couple workstations in here and there's also a lie flat seat that turns into a bed that he can be seat belted in at night. So he gets to stay on his schedule no matter where we are. And, and in the mornings when we drive between cities, he gets to do his schoolwork the same way he would if he was home at school. And so a big part of that was making sure for me that I could feel really good about leading the way I want to lead and being the mother I want to be as well. I, I want an unstoppable mobile so bad. <laughs> and I already know it, it already has a name. I love uh, it. But it, yeah. I, what about I, the license plate? You I, I already have an unstoppable license plate. It's already on my current car. I, I just got to, I just got to switch it over. I love it. Uh, I'm really enjoying this conversation and we usually wrap up with, you know, where's your business now? I think we did that pretty well. Yeah. And like, what's the change you want to see in the world? And I kind of feel like you just did that. You, you shared like, and I am 100% on board with you. I, I, I we share a lot of the same sentiment. Um, we talked earlier in today's conversation about PF Chang's and like these big corporate organizations. And I think that we can learn a lot from those, but also it's, I think what we need to do is find a balance. Mm-hmm. And I think that we can have tons of PF Chang's and McDonald's and uh, you know, name the biggest corporations, subways, whatever they are. We can take that we can all operate at that level, but we can scale down and operate regionally like that, Yeah, you know? And I think we can, like, and that's kind of how I've evolved over time. I used to think that the corporations and franchises were the, the enemy, they're evil. Yeah. I do think we can find a better balance still to this day. Mm-hmm. And I think that we find that balance by taking their practices and, and operating at that level. And we have access to the technology today to do it. You know, everybody, every restaurant has the access to the technology to be that organized. And with that organization, we can hone, we can bring that focus in and just make an impact locally and have micro chains, you know, and I think that's the future. And I think you're seeing that right now. You're seeing like great regional operators getting plucked up to do some cool stuff. And I, and I do think you're right that there's that, that it, it feels like. That feels a lot more interesting, even from a consumer perspective. Doesn't too. need to be hundreds of locations. You can still be a millionaire with twenty restaurants. <laughs> you know, like you know, yeah, you can do pretty yeah. good for yourself and create lots of opportunity yeah, for others. 100%, yeah, you know, um, yeah. I've really enjoyed this conversation. We have ten minutes to bust out a speed round, so we're going to okay. take one more quick break to thank our sponsor, and we'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Mies, the culinary operating system for food professionals. As a chef and restaurant owner for the past 20 plus years, Mies founder and CEO Josh Sharkey was frustrated that only the financial and inventory software was available in the kitchen. And while those are important, they don't actually address the process of cooking, training, production, collaboration, and execution. Whether you're a chef, mixologist, consultant, operator, or generally if you manage a recipe intended for professional kitchens, Mies was built just for you. Organize, share, prep, and scale your recipes like never before. Plus, get laser-accurate food costs and nutritional analysis faster than you could ever imagine. Chefs that use Mies have seen, on average, 70% reduction in training time for new staff, 20 to 30% less food waste and overproduction, and an average of thirty to 50000 reduction in annual cost of goods sold from their easy-to-use recipe engineering. 
part of the magic in Mies is a built-in database of thousands of ingredients that have been tested by Mies chefs and registered dietitians to ensure all the yield loss when you prep an ingredient as well as the unit conversions from volume to weight to pieces are built in, not to mention automated allergen tagging to ensure you have a consolidated view of allergens and nutrition. Get started by visiting getmes.com slash unstoppable. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash unstoppable. And as a listener of Restaurant Unstoppable podcast, you can get two free months of invoice processing by signing up today. Revolutionize the way work is done in your kitchen with Mies. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. We are back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Vision. I really do. What is your biggest weakness? I'm all or nothing. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? This is hard. Uh, There's so many things. Um, I think integrity. What is your biggest challenge today? Surrounding myself with unicorns. Ooh, How are you overcoming it? Shaking every tree. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team, a core value, a way to be. Growth-mindedness. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? Something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants to go above and beyond guest expectation, but not common throughout the industry. Every person is a guest, right? Every person you encounter is a guest. So the your team member, your, your produce um, truck driver, that we treat each other first how we expect to treat our guests. And what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Mm, I think with my uh, brain right now, as fuzzy as it is, I, um, it's The Heart of Business by Hubert Jolie. Mm. 
And what was the biggest takeaway from that book? Really how to transform businesses uh, after their first, you know, when they're in, when they're in their adolescence. Yeah. You know, there's this, this theory out there right now that the mind literally, or the heart actually has a mind in it, like a, a bundle of neurons or nerves that act like a heart. Um, there's somebody out there I, I need to talk to. Do you know that person? Is no. that, does it get into that stuff? Like no, the heart no, no. energy? No, this was about heart you know, turning, turning around Best Buy. You oh, know? Okay. But it's really more just, I think like a lot of people, it was really influential to me because I did transform my company when it was, in its adolescence, yeah, 14, you, 15 years old. You also mentioned Ari Weinswag. I want to give him a little oh. nod as a past guest, and I love what they're doing over there at Zing Train. Um, if you're interested in learning more about what we discussed, uh, the lapsed anarchist approach to, and there's like five books, I think, in yeah. the series. The, but the first one is how to, the lapsed anarchist approach to building a great business. Then I, the next one is becoming a better leader, and then knowing oneself is the other yeah. one. And I can't remember the. But all those series, like in, the cool thing about those books is you can pick them up and every, every chapter is written like an essay. Yeah. They stand alone. So he was a huge inspiration to me when I got started. He was one of my dream guests. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. What piece of technology have you recently adopted within the four walls of your business that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profit, profitability, anything along those lines? This is going to sound crazy because it might sound really simple, but just streamlining all of us are on Microsoft to do. My team's yeah. going to laugh when they hear that too. No, it's a great tool. I mean, <laughs> whether it's that or Google or like one of those cloud-based options that lets communication and documents live and be accessed. Yeah. And this is just task management. This is just like how we help each other manage each other's, you know, where, where we intersect. Like, I don't know. I'm, a, I'm such a task oriented person. That's probably my perspective yeah. only, you know, this is the last question. Mm-hmm. It's a doozy. Okay. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Um, we're better together. One. Uh, clear as kind. Two. And you, be- you become what you believe. Three. Carol Lee, I've loved today's conversation. Me too. I know you're extremely busy and I just, I can't say thank you enough for making the time to let me come and share your story, welcoming you into your home to make this happen. Uh, there is just so much value in today's conversation. I loved it. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. I'm trying to remove myself from the process of who determines or, you know, who we make an example of. Yeah. You success recognizes success. Who do you respect? And admire somebody if they were a guest on the show you'd be like get this person I, I don't know if she's been on the show but lauren bailey of upward project you know upward projects has been uh somebody i call when i'm like oh my gosh what do i do now is she in um, charleston no she's based out of arizona Ooh, west, yeah postino is their postino uh, wine cafe is their um rollout currently beautiful brand but they're wonderful people and uh, inspirational to me in the way that they're growing and investing in their people and it's beautiful. And what city is that? Uh, I think they're in Phoenix. Phoenix. Look out. I'm coming your way. I would love to connect with you, Lauren. And that was Lauren Bailey, right? Yeah. Uh, and how can we connect with you if we're just like, holy moly, who is this lady? I need to know more. We want to follow you. Maybe we want to come work for you. What's the best way to connect? You know, there's a couple ways. I think uh, info at allgoodindustries.com is one email address. I think info at talkaboy.net's another one. And I'm, I'm on social media. I'm on the the socials at Carolee Fallert uh, on Instagram. And, and I think Carolee Nelson Fallert on, uh, on Facebook. 
Carolee Fowler, thank you again so much for taking the time to be a guest. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. There is another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Kara Lee Nielsen Fowler, for going deep, getting real. And man, a lot of the sentiment you echo today, Kara Lee, was near and dear to my heart. I love what you're doing. I love the energy you're putting out. I love the opportunity you're creating for others. I love the slow and steady, organic, natural growth. And uh, I just can't wait to see where you guys end up. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And if you're enjoying this podcast and you want more content just like this, we do need your support. I'm not messing around, folks. It is not easy to deliver the content that I'm delivering, uh, the the quality, the in-person interviews, two episodes a day, sorry, two episodes a week on site, traveling across the country. This is a hungry beast. We need your support. And there's a ton of ways you can support the show. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors, using our affiliate links, sharing this thing with anybody and everyone you know aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry. And then we're, we're bringing the network back. Well, technically, the network never went anywhere. But I have to be honest, we kind of put it on pause for a while because I wanted to do what I do best. Travel the country, sit down at these badass restaurant tours, get them to open up and share their knowledge and their their perspective, and do it in a, a intimate, impactful way. But to do what I'm doing on the road, two episodes a week, and to manage a digital network, I can't do it all. So. We're bringing on a community manager, uh, somebody whose job it is, is going to be to focus on serving you, our listeners, giving you what you want, listening to what you want, and working with me to provide you what you want, connecting with our, our guests, uh, reflecting on the biggest lessons learned in almost a thousand episodes. We're going to be slowing down, and I cannot wait to have the help to do this right. So uh, if the network is something you've been interested in, if you want to connect with our listener or our well, yeah, other listeners and the people we're getting on the show, then sign up for the network is for you head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com uh thank you in advance we're going to build this thing together so i'm super excited about that and um you know we're just we're just getting started we are literally just getting started i feel like the first 10 years was the first hour of restaurant unstoppable and this thing is going places so we'd love you to come with us that's it for today until next time peace out